0: Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Intentional Performers Podcast. I am Brian Levinson. Excited to have you with us for another great episode today. But before we get to today's guest, I just want to welcome you. If this is your first time, if you've been here before, welcome back. And we appreciate you tuning in, listening to these conversations. Hopefully, you find them useful and worthwhile and inspiring. And if today's conversation resonates with you, we'd appreciate it if you went over to iTunes and wrote us a review. It really does help us expand our reach, and find new listeners. So thanks to all of you who have already done so, and thanks to those of you that will go over right now and write us a review or wait until this conversation is finished. Also, if you like today's show, we'd appreciate if you shared it, send a text to a friend or an email to a friend with the link, share it on social media, heck grab mom or dad's phone and subscribe them to the show and say, "Hey, I think you'd enjoy listening to these conversations and today's is probably a little different for mom and dad, but I think they'll like it as well." So, Riley Cote played in the NHL, the National Hockey League for 4 years. And he was mainly known as an enforcer. And if you're not familiar with hockey and the NHL, an enforcer's job is to fight. They protect their players. They are involved in physical play. And in hockey, you're allowed to drop your gloves and have a fist fight with your bare knuckles. And they do get penalized for this, but they don't get suspended for fighting. It It's part of the game. And today's NHL, as I'll talk about with Riley, has less and less fighting than it did back when he played in the National Hockey League. But we're going to talk about his experience as an enforcer and what it was like for him and the toll it took on him mentally and emotionally. And we'll also talk about whether or not fighting should still be a part of the game. I think you'll be fascinated to hear Riley's perspective. And upon retiring from the National Hockey League after playing for the Philadelphia Flyers, he founded the Hemp Heels Foundation, which is a 501c3 nonprofit organization that promotes cannabis, hemp, as a viable Resource that can help increase the quality of the lives of people. Riley is also a co founder of Athletes for Care, which is a nonprofit organization dedicated to creating a community where athletes can find support, opportunity, and purpose in life after a career in sports. Riley is currently launching a product line called Body Check Wellness. You can check it out at bodycheckwellness.com, which is a line of hemp based personal care products whose mission it is to optimize everyday performance and challenge individuals to rethink the healing process. The line reinforces Riley's passion to help individuals discover safe, non-toxic methods for pain management and self-healing. Riley is a thoughtful guy and he is gonna share a lot of what he's learned over the years. He's gonna share the ups, the downs of what he's experienced throughout his life in professional hockey and outside of it. And he's gonna be open and honest and vulnerable about alternative medications, about what he does to make sure that his body and his mind are where they need to be. And so this conversation is not just with a professional athlete or a former professional athlete, but a... It's with somebody who's a deep thinker and has given a lot of thought and intentional thought about how they want to show up daily and how they want to think about their future and how they want to heal themselves mentally, physically, emotionally, and spiritually. So you're going to love this conversation with Riley. He's a deep thinker. He's a thoughtful guy. So without further ado, I present to you, Riley Cote. Riley, great to have you on the podcast. Really excited to chat with you, get to know you today. Uh, We were connected by Charlie the Spaniard. And he's been great to me and has connected me with some awesome people. And I loved having him on the podcast as well. What I'd love to find out about you to start is just get an idea of your childhood, what life was like for you growing up, uh, when hockey came into your life. Give us an idea of what your family was like and what your upbringing was like.
1: Yeah, I grew up in the middle of Canada, Winnipeg, Manitoba. And just like uh, most Canadian children, hockey is just uh, ingrained in the DNA. So as long as I can remember... Uh, I was on skates playing hockey. My, both my parents had uh, season tickets to the Winnipeg Jets. Um, you know, it was uh, ho- hockey is definitely etched into my memory on so many levels. Uh, you know, playing uh, on the pond or the local outdoor rinks or the indoor rinks. You know, there was just there wasn't a shortage of ice, so uh, it's just something I just uh, really loved. Um, you know, loved to be outside. You know, it's a I didn't realize it was a, you know a creative sport, um, especially when you're playing pond hockey and you know, expressing in that way, or it's kind of like a, 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 you know, a positive release. It just, uh, some, I just love doing, you know, so, uh, my parents were pretty conservative, you know, um, you know, middle-class people that, you know, poured a lot of, uh, time and effort into, you know, providing resources to play hockey. It's an expensive sport once you get playing competitive. Um, but also the sacrifice on weekends and taking, you know, taking the, the, the kids to the, to the rink and, Tournaments and the whole bit, the travel. So you know, a ton of props to my parents. Uh, you know, for you know, essentially becoming uh, hockey parents and you know, getting into that world. And um, and it was it was awesome. They were so supportive of of me growing up. And you know, eventually I went from you know, my first uh, league of uh, say league um, of organized hockey I was four years old, <laughs> half ice, but, you know, kind of little kids bouncing around, and you know, evolving into you know, getting into, you know, travel hockey and AAA hockey. And, you know, eventually I moved away from home when I was, was 16. Um, but they were fully supportive. And, you know, the way I envisioned, you know, playing in the NHL, you know, obviously it was a dream. You know, you don't just play hockey just because, uh, you know, it, it's fun. You ha- you know, it's kind of like, uh, it's yeah, it is fun, but it's also bigger than that. There was a, a dream attached to it, and that was like, going to play in the NHL and score, you know, 100 goals a year, like Wayne Gretzky. And, you know, I mean, it's like this – the surreal thing. But as I, you know, grew older, you know, I was a a big fish in a small pond, you know, one of the better hockey players for my age um, in in that city in Canada. But then, you know, when I moved away to the Western Hockey League at 16, uh, you know, things certainly changed, you know, it was, uh, it was, it was just a totally different uh, beast of, of sports, but uh, childhood in in, in Winnipeg, it was, uh, it was simple, you know, paper, paper boy, I um, mean, you know, a lot of shoveling in the wintertime is like, you know, a lot of uh, elements, but uh, uh, also a lot of hockey, 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 hockey. You know, and then in summertime, it was the same thing. It was just that part of my being growing up. Siblings? I got two sisters. Yeah. Older, uh, one older, one younger, we both played hockey as well.
0: And what impact did they have on your life?
1: You know, I think you know they were always supportive of me. You know, as a hockey player, I think you know, just like any brother and sister, you know, you have your your battles, but you know they're always there to to support you and cheer you on when you you know when you need it the most. So you know they're both back in Winnipeg still, and have families and all that good stuff. And you know, I think I've changed a lot since since I played, and I think they you know they appreciate you know the evolution and also you know the you know, the constant, uh, outreach of, of, help that I'm, you know, trying to help them with, you know, probably, probably to a fault, but, uh, yeah, you no know, loving sisters and, you know, good, uh, good, uh, healthy rivalry between us, uh, at times, but, uh, that's just the, the nature of it.
0: We'll talk about evolution and, and how you changed, but before we do that, what were the values that mom and dad passed down to you and your sisters?
1: You know, one of the big ones, um, and, uh, you know, it sounds cliche, but uh, it was certainly, you know, the spine of my being was, was just a uh, work ethic. Honestly, it was just like, just never quit and work as hard as you can at whatever you can do and whatever you're doing. Um, so, you know, I take that for a grain of salt, but uh, you know, in, in hockey and just, I think everything I did, I was always super competitive, but in hockey it was very very obvious that I was like the hardest working kid and you know what I mean? And just like, you know, I had a you know, paper route from like, you know, 11 years old to to 16 year old, 16 years old. And, you know, in the middle of the, the most freezing cold place in the, you know, in, in Canada and um, you know, I was just like driven and within, it, I just, it was just etched in as work, right. Work, work, work. So I think that fundamentally has, uh, is uh, you know, been ingrained in my DNA and uh, you know, now I've realized that that, that simple teaching um, is kind of evolve into um, more mindful work, right? So it's like work is you know subjective in what you want to call work, but it's not always the people that work the hardest. You know, physical labor wise are the ones that get paid the most. So it's being working more wisely than 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 maybe necessarily working so hard. You know, physically because you know I was a banger. You know, then, you know, I took that into the evolution of my role in hockey and fighting. It was like, okay, work, work, work harder, work harder, just be tougher. You know what I mean? It was kind of maybe even morphed into something that maybe was unhealthy at times, but um, certainly it's a positive characteristic. It just needs to be defined what work is. And I think I've learned that uh, over time of, you know, work is, you know, a lot of things, but you can do a lot of work, but be, you know, very cognizant of, of time and, and resources and, 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 you know, and physical stress that comes along with work. Right. So I think that my parents, you I mean, and they're just, you know, loving, we grew up in a religious family. Um, but just that, you know, that old school way of just got to earn it. You just got to earn it. You know what I mean? You just got to work, you know, they're both coming from like farming families and stuff. So, um, you know that, that that that's certainly one of the biggest things I can remember of, of just like to simplify it to that just work. You know what I mean? It's pretty pretty simple, yet yeah, it's it's disciplined to do.
0: Before we hit the record button, you mentioned spirituality, and now you said your religious uh, religious family. What kind of framework did you guys have growing up? Is that still the framework that you leverage today? Talk about religion and spirituality, and sometimes those are separate. Sometimes they're the same. So just talk about your perspective on it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I enjoy this conversation because, um, you know, there can be uh, you know, spirituality found in religion, but they're not the same. Um, I, you know, I grew up in a, in a religious you know family and, you know, a, you know, Protestant Christian and, you know, going to church every Sunday and, you know, and um, youth group, stuff like that. There was always something that I was disconnected with. It was obviously the message. Um, I just didn't, um, I had a lot of questions and I always found that a lot of the answers were kind of like, you know, too. Too too vague for me, or you know, I, I think just this is human human nature to be curious, right? I mean, I think we're we're, we're supposed to be finding truths and and, um, and and figuring this thing out. So naturally, you know, the way I'm wired would uh, you know kind of kind of question it and we kind of eventually just kind of not really want to go to church. And, you know, my parents, you know, kind of like, oh, you know, we're going to church every Sunday. You're going to go to youth group. And eventually I kind of like separated myself from the church, especially as I moved away from home at 16. But even before then I kind of had separated myself from this youth group stuff. And, um, um, the long and short of it is just, I, I just, uh, realized that there was something bigger than, you know, um, and what they're talking about and I just I just thought of it differently you know God wasn't uh, to me was was like you know being like mother nature and you know this this energy that we can't quantify and and um, and love and you know what I mean and, and just this like you know this this different world that the, the, really the Bible necessarily wasn't touching on so um, in, the, in the spiritual world now there's, I just view like spirituality as like you know taking analogies from the Bible that I've learned and all these are stories, right? And just making some sense of them, uh, of them in <clears throat> in in real, true layman's terms. And you know, it's funny how some of the most religious people don't even treat themselves like gods. You know what I mean? So my, in my spiritual world now, it's like, okay, well, I look at food as medicine, and I, I look at everything I'm putting in my body um, as you know something that's either going to nourish me or something that's going to actually um, you know essentially kill me um, long you know in, in, over time um, poison, if you want to call it that. Um, and just the people around me, be more aware of people, is vibration and energy. Is it making me feel good? You know, is it good energy or do I feel, you know, creative and constructive in this energy or is it, you know, negative complaining, you know, pessimistic energy. And, um, you know, it's just like understanding that there's, there's so much, there's so much that we're not in tune with when you're, you know, not very mindful. And really when you're talking about spirituality, I think, we would, you know, in the, in the church thinking it's a little bit, it's boxed in but then all of a sudden you can think outside the box and be like wow i mean there's a whole other dimension of thinking when you're in tune with you know energy and then you know then the whole cannabis you know the cannabis thing it's like okay well now you got spiritual medicine right it's 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 it's, it's an herb yes but there's a spiritual component that comes along with cannabis but you know in the box model it's like okay well no that's that's illegal because well, man's, man says that's illegal, but we can't understand that, you know, God created the earth and everything on the earth. But um, nonetheless, it's conscious forming a spirit involved. And then you get into like psychedelics, you know, the, the psilocybin. I recently went to Peru and did an ayahuasca um, ceremony, three of them actually in a row. And he pause for me,
0: pause for me, pause for me. What was that? What was that like?
1: Oh, my God. It's, it, it, words can't really describe it. One of the most challenging things I've ever done in my, in my life um, but Can also explain, explain to
0: people point. in ayahuasca cause some people that are listening might not be familiar with it.
1: Sure. So ayahuasca is, um, is native to South America and you know, Peru has, you know, a real significant, uh, culture in, green, uh, in involving the, um, the growing and, um, you know, producing and ingesting of ayahuasca. And it's, it's, um, an ayahuasca vine that grows, you know, wild in the jungle and as in conjunction with another plant called the tracruna plant, which contains DMT and one allows the DMT to actually, um, uh, work in your brain where if you were just to eat the one plant by itself or drink it, you would not get the DMT effect. So together they release, you know, the psychedelic properties and it's called and the, 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 beverage is called, I say beverage. It's, it's like almost like tar, but the drink is called ayahuasca. And, um, yeah, we were, it was, it was, it was uh, guided by a shaman and, um, very, very deep, um, soul spirit search. Um, you know, uh, a lot of purging, it was an emotional and spiritual release. So basically anything that's not serving anymore, if you're harboring any you know, negative energies, whether it's resentment or fear or, or, or whatever it is you're harboring, it will show you that and you will confront it. And, um, you know, it could be dark at times and there's, again, a lot of physical purge. But I think most of the purge is actually emotional and spiritual. It's, 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 it's a deeper level of, of puking and purging. But on the other side of that, I know it sounds really negative, um, you know, just a lot It shows you a lot of darkness. If you have trauma, childhood trauma, <clears throat> I did it with a couple of different military veterans. Obviously, you got a ton of trauma, PTSD it brings it brings the trauma to you where, you know, most people run away from their fears and their problems and you know, they self-medicate with alcohol and whatnot. What shows you your problem is shows you your fears and you face it and you will be in that space for some time dealing with it until you make some resolve with it and then there's like an energy release and there's usually a purge that comes along with it. Um, but on the other side of it is just like super, super positive um, energy of love and peace and self-love and Perspective, uh, ideas, um, just insights in your life—just uh, amazing. It's hard to explain. It's, it's i mean, essentially, it's, you know, it's DMT for four, four hours, right? I mean, it's you're in a different, a different dimension, but it's all about you and focusing on you and how to be a better person and, you know, how to make sense of this world and how to eliminate toxins and emotional toxins and spiritual toxins and. Uh, make makes sense of energy. It's what it is. You can actually talk to my mother ayahuasca while you're under the influence and almost guide, guide the ship. You know, it's, it's, it's wild.
0: Why did you decide to do that?
1: Well, it's been on my bucket list for at least three years. Uh, just had been listening to you know, uh, several podcasts that you know people had gone there and done it, watched a couple of documentaries, had a couple buddies that had done it. It was just for me, it was a timing thing, an opportunity thing. I didn't want to be the guy that's going to go searching around in Peru and not understanding who who I'm getting involved with and and where to go Um, you know I I always wanted to do it there for the first time I had opportunities to do some local stuff uh, you know beforehand uh, but I just it just didn't seem right I said I just wanted to kind of like the true you know ceremonial experience in you know the native land of this medicine so when I got this opportunity it was right before Christmas honestly maybe six weeks before it was through a group called Heroic Hearts Project, and they're a 501c3 nonprofit um, organization that essentially raises money and sends military veterans to these retreats. Um, so we ended up kind of co-sponsoring these these Marines. I went with one of my former teammates, um, and um, yeah, it was, it, was, it was amazing. So this organization kind of like has, has done it there before, I think, you know, at least 13 or 14 times. Um, so it was vetted, you know, the guy was trusted, well-known you know, he'd been a shaman for 11 years and, you know, practiced under one for seven or something. So, um, just through the organization itself and knowing all this made me feel like, okay, well, this is a great opportunity. You know, I'm, 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 actually doing this with, you know, some veterans that, um, uh, you know, I can relate with, you know, in, in a sense, because, you know, trauma is trauma and, you know, PTSD is PTSD is pain is pain. So, you know, there's you know, that, that kind of, uh, athlete, uh, veteran, you know, connection, so I thought it was an amazing opportunity. So when the you know opportunity presented itself, it was like I'm all in. You know, what I mean, let's do this. I'm ready for this. So I, I actually really prepared myself well. I was I was already pretty clean in my diet and, and you know my my regime. I rarely rarely even touch alcohol in a glass of wine now and then. But they call it a dieta where you actually fast from certain energies um, before you um, you know you engage in the ceremony. So uh, you know, cannabis, caffeine, alcohol, um, meat, um, sex. Um, so you're basically kind of detoxing before you go and and detox. But for how
0: for how long are you abstaining? I did
1: that, I did that three weeks. Um, you know, some guys only did it a week or or two. But you know, you try your best to kind of eliminate, um, you know, just eliminate some stuff that might interfere with the plant medicine, and just and, and also like if you're gonna you know go you know go and eat you know just whatever you want up until you go there and eat in this like really limited plant based diet. You know, two meals a day, and you're, and you're purging out essentially one meal those a day. You know what I mean? It's just like a culture shock. So you're trying to go in there as pure as possible because you're trying to cleanse, right? I mean, that's what it is. It's an emotional, spiritual release, but it's also a cleanse, right? So uh, it was it was wild.
0: Where does your curiosity come from? Is that something that you think your parents passed down to you? Because it it seems pretty <laughs> clear that you're no. curious, dude. No, you're.
1: Yeah, I'm super super curious, but it's definitely not something that's passed on. My parents are pretty uh, you know pretty conservative in the box. Uh, so
0: where does that come from for you? Where do you think?
1: Honestly, probably just um, my early, my early um, days of early psychedelics, honestly, probably mushrooms. I think mushrooms have really um, opened my mind um, a lot more than, you know, probably, say, the common man, just based on um, the, the, the level of consciousness you can tap into. And, um, you know, and since I retired, even in that world... I've explored that, you know, in a so in such a, a mindful manner that it's uh, it's totally night and day. You know, when you talk about the, you know, intentional um, plant medicine use versus you know more say recreational, just not understanding it. Still, it's still you know medicinal and therapeutic, but with that true intention, it changes the experience
0: so Riley, Riley would you say you weren't curious as a 20 year old or oh as yeah a kid? you were then too
1: yeah I was curious I mean I you know to be perfectly honest I mean I experimented with a lot of different drugs you know um, and it was, it was curiosity because well no one was teaching you the truth I mean the church wasn't the parents were just passing on whatever they knew and that was you know all drugs are bad and alcohol is legal and cigarettes are legal and you know what I mean and go nuts on the food. Don't worry about your diet. You know what I mean? All these kind of like really, um, you know, interesting philosophies and most people just, you know, sign up to believe them. And I think, I guess, I guess, you know, when you go against something, you always seem like you're like, you know, that, that guy, you know, you, know, you just can't just go with it. But like at some point when it doesn't resonate with your, with your, your divine being, like you got to question it. Right. That's like the whole gut feeling. It's like, Oh, it doesn't seem right. So is it right? Or are we going to question it? So, you so know, when you start I'm learning.
0: I'm just trying to understand, though, where you're where you where, where it came from. Like, so was it was it counter to what your environment was growing up? And maybe you went sort of counter to that? Probably,
1: or? probably, because I think it was just like, I guess when you just don't buy into a philosophy, then you you're, you're curious to figure out another one. You know what I mean? I think that so that was that quest of kind of like going on my own and figuring this thing out on my own was. Was based on I just didn't believe in the philosophy that I was taught you know I, I guess sisters, I never really thought about where it came yeah from.
0: are your sisters more like mom and dad or are yeah oh
1: yeah I'm the I'm the definitely the black sheep
0: black sheep so so the black sheep moves away at 16 uh you also are playing what are you playing juniors then like what what yep. is so you're playing hockey um at that point what are you like as a 16 year old playing in juniors from a mindset standpoint from uh maturity standpoint just walk us through what that's like to move out of the house and go away
1: sure I think I was pretty mature um you know in the sense that uh you know I always you know took pride in you know carrying myself as, as a professional I think that was taught from my parents too it was just like you know you know carry carry yourself with confidence and um you know I mean don't speak out of line kind of just like you know what I mean just I guess more of a professional um approach to life and 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 being Um, but I I think, I I think I took my, my work ethic and my, my drive with me, um, into that. I think, I think I get, I I think still then, even though I still had question marks about a lot of things, I, you know, you get swallowed up into marketing and, and, and different ways of training. And back then there wasn't such functional training for hockey. So I got more into like lifting weights and, you know, being a certain weight and having, you know, these kind of creating these stories for myself where I thought I had to be a certain weight and I had to be a certain size. And this is how I was going to, you know, get the respect or, you know what I mean? That, that type of mentality. So I was mature in the sense of, you know, I, I wasn't a guy that got in trouble, you know, I, you know, kept my nose clean, you know, I, I obviously did stuff that was, you know, questionable, but, um, but I was always respectful. You know what I mean? It was questionable in the sense of the law, but it was, you know, it was never about hurting people or, you know what I mean? Um, any, any of that stuff. So, um, but I just think I just, uh, I think I just probably hit the bullseye on the wrong target when it came to, um, you know, understanding wellness, actually, I wasn't even on my map then. It was more like fitness and strength, right? It was, it was, it was just shallow shallow thinking, right? So, uh, you know, spirituality is, is a process. It's, it's, it's growth. So I think I began my spiritual, you know, my real true spiritual quest young, but I think again, with not understanding the differences between substances, you know, a lot of unconscious forming drugs like alcohol, which is totally acceptable and, and, you know, drinking all the time and, you know, to black, to, to, to blackout, you know, and, and, um, you know, unconscious. And so, you know, I think those types of things slow down your spiritual journey, um, because they're, they're de I mean, there's a reason why I call them spirits is if you look at what alcohol does in, in, in humans and, and in plants is that it withdraws the, the essence of them, the, whether it's the plant essential oil or the spirit of the human you drink until you eventually black out, you know, and your spirit is essentially out of your body now. So, um, you know, those things do absolutely prevent spiritual growth. So it's not until you understand this, but without the manual and the actual true guidance, like which a church is supposed to really be helping you with, um, you know, you have, you're, you're out there to kind of figure it out on your own, you know, I mean, you're trying street drugs and you're doing all these different things, trying to make sense of what it's doing to you without having, you know, back then there was no www.com figure it out. It was just kind of like figure it out. And, um, and and even now is now, now you get the other problem where it's like too much, too much, uh, information, misinformation, whatever you want to call it, where you get opposite polar opposite explanations about the same exact thing. and, And how can you make any sense of it unless you're, you know, somewhat of a rational thinker.
0: Were you into education academics? Were you into reading?
1: No. None of it. Honestly, I didn't get into that until I retired when I started kind of uh, shifting my mindset towards self-love and, you know, learning and appreciating all these things that have been fundamental to humans forever is just simple reading and learning and, you know, keeping your brain active uh, that way. uh, That's one regret I have is just so much wasted time, you know, so much wasted time where I could have either, either read more books or, um, you know, built the business, built my brand. I was so consumed with just like, you know, the egocentric component of the sport that came along with it. I was, I was the fighter on the team and, you know what I mean? I was, you know, just thought I was going to live forever and play forever. And, you know, and that was who Riley Cote was, but uh, I was sadly mistaken. And uh, it t- it just took a lot of, you know, physical, emotional, and spiritual abuse to to figure out that I was not, not living, you know, my my true divine story, you know, it was, I needed to, to shift um, gears and, you know, hop on the other side of the fence and find myself and, you know, show myself some self-respect and self-love. And I know it's, it's a, it's a, it's something we don't talk about really at all is, you know, this self-love, but it's, uh, it's certainly important to the spiritual component of life. and, And without it, you really can't, understand love as an energy and you can't really truly love other people if you don't love yourself and i think that just comes with you know self-respect through the choices you make and going back to diet and you know all these other things because you know god knows if you're killing yourself through diet and things that you're, you're supposed to be nourishing yourself with it's, it's you're, you're basically chiseling away at your own temple so, um, so i'm not sure where i was going with that but yeah i'll
0: bring you back so yeah. so Hockey wise, though, you are making your way through the ranks and you know, playing in the minors. And as you're playing, so I've I've had conversations with people that played your role on professional on NHL teams. And a lot of times those guys that play that role didn't necessarily play that role when they were younger, but that was their ticket. And it's sort of what they had to do to stay in the show, to stay in the NHL. So, but I, but walk me through like your progression as you're working your way up to the NHL and what that's like compared to once you're in the NHL.
1: Yeah, sure. So throughout my junior career, um, I think in four years I had 20 fights. And, uh, most of my first year as a 16 year old, then again, it was, I kind of realized like, Oh geez, I got, I got to do something a little differently to even stay in the lineup. So my first couple of years, really a fourth line, third line role there the second year. So fought less that second year, but I didn't identify myself, identify myself as a fighter. Uh, i would never been in a, a fight before that, um, um, off the ice and stuff. So it was, um, it was, it was interesting, but I was just like, okay, I just got to hang on and hang on to my job here. Um, couple more fights the last, you know, th- you know, a couple years that I played there in juniors, um, it wasn't drafted and that was really kind of what, um, you know, triggered the idea that I needed to, to do something different, not being drafted. I was looking at guys getting called up or signing. It was guys with lots of, you know, a lot of points, goals and assists, uh, whatever league they're coming from and, or a lot of penalty minutes. So I was like, geez, I'm like, I'm not drafted. My foot's not in the door in any organization. Um, I know I'm competitive enough. I know I got the, I I got that fire, you know, fighting's not for everybody. And I just, I almost kind of like got excited about this new challenge. Right. So I was like, you know what? I can do this. So after my fourth year, i up going to Toronto Maple Leafs camp. And uh, that summer, you talk about training like a meathead and not being functional at all. I just, you know, trained to be a fighter, but not really, not like a UFC fighter, just by guys went to the gym and wanted to look big and strong and just, you know, knew you had the heart to do it. Go to Toronto Maple Leafs camp, and that was when I turned it on and said, "Guess what? This is this is new, the new Riley Cote. This is this is my new identity. I'm I am going to make it be known that I'm going to be the fighter and me the guy." So, I went to that camp. Like literally my first shift, I went and ran Travis Green and <laughs> Darcy Tucker came at me, and not that he's a big guy, but you know, neither was neither, neither am I. But nonetheless, uh, you know, two punched him and you know got all excited, and it was on national television and all this stuff. To, it was uh, it was the moment that jump started this this new um, newly created uh, Riley, and it was um, I'm all in. When you when you are not drafted, was there any other opportunity or
0: option that you would think of? Was it going back home and getting working on a farm? Like, what were your options at that moment when you sort of decide I'm going to go all in and go for this role and and sort of what what was on the table at that point?
1: Uh, well, the only other option would have been in the hockey space would have got, be to go back to junior and play another year, my overage year. The only other option outside of the hockey would have been just you know packing it in and working a nine to five. But that wasn't even on my mind at all. I was like, no, no, I'm I'm doing this. Like even if I have to start the lowest possible pro league, which I did, um, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna fight my way out of it. And you know, I just I never really never really thought I wasn't gonna make it. Honestly, it was I was always like. Just gonna do this. I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna do it. Even if I went and partied, I was like, I'm gonna be the first guy at the rink in the morning. I'm gonna work hard. You know what I mean? Just this old school mentality of just like you know, um, unsustainability. But you know, the heart and everything was there. The intention was there. It was just, uh, you know, somewhat misguided. But um, yeah. Did you you love you loved hockey. I loved hockey. Yeah, and I think when I first started fighting, I think I really enjoyed the challenge of fighting again I just kind of learning on my own just like figuring it out got beat up got beat up go after the biggest guy got the most penalty minutes got beat up um you know I still got beat up all the way to the NHL but it was like you know I was a, a basically a, a pretty thin naturally lean guy that packed on an extra 25 pounds of you know quasi you know mo- mostly muscle but you know there's some extra fat there I probably didn't need and they moving up weight class. If you look at UFC and boxing, these guys shed weight to move down a weight class so they can be more efficient, more, you know, quicker and, and actually you know, stand a chance against some of these bigger guys. I was actually gaining weight to, you know, fight um, guys way out of my weight class. So um, the, the losses certainly came with, you know, w- w- with the wins, but um, I didn't care. You know what I mean? I was almost like, I almost like enjoyed getting beat up at some point. And it was like, oh, I'm going to fight him again. You know, I'm going to go fight him again then, you know? And it was just like, Again, it was almost like I felt like I was like a WWE wrestler or something. It was like I took on this 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 role, this image that came along with it. Where I was I'm a tough guy, so I have to always act tough at the rink. Or not I mean, say like on the ice because you know, guys in the locker room knew that I was just, you know a friendly giant. But um, it was it was this act that I had to bring to the ice all the time, where I was like always ready to fight. You know, what even would if I you really do? want to fight,
0: what would you do to get yourself into that headspace?
1: Well, just you know, envisioning the fight, watching the fight. Um, you know, there's YouTube and everything. Obviously, you can kind of study your opponent. Um, but you know, before the game it was a lot of stimulants, a lot of caffeine. I went through all kinds of different phases of whether it was Red Bull or you know, mixture of Red Bull and Sudafed and you know, whatnot. All, all kinds of garbage that was terrible for me, but just get myself so jacked up where. You know, if I, if I got the puck, um, I, I, you know, have so much, you know, so much jitters that I would, you know, just want to get rid of the puck. So it was, um, you know, it was counterintuitive to being a hockey player, but you know, when I'm all in knowing I'm going to fight anyways, probably in the first period, it was like, okay, well, it's a small price to pay because I know I'm going to be doing this and I need to do this better than handle that puck that one second. Um, you know, it was the, the thinking was so off, you know, it was so off, but I was so again, entrenched in this, this role, much like a WWE wrestler, just like it became me. So I felt like I was just like, overdoing the training and the, you know, the mental preparation for that specific role.
0: And what were the effects of that off the ice? Were there, were there side effects that came with that and getting into that headspace off the ice?
1: I don't think I really recognized them until later um, in my career, because I felt like, I feel like this type of thinking and being is like, it could be good short term. It's not sustainable. Right. So I, I, mean, I didn't really make any sense of this at the time, but you know, when you're, when you're hungry and you, even though you're doing it wrong, but you're so determined to do it, you still find a way. Right. So um, uh, again, just uh, you know, fighting 30, 35 times a year, which is which is tough to stay healthy fighting that much. And, 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 you know, I was going to the gym religiously. I was like a gym rat. I mean, days off, I'd go to the rink, like, really, over, just you know, to put
0: that in perspective, you had 20 fights before the NHL. I think you said. Did I hear yeah. that? And then four years, yeah. 30 to 35 a year. Yeah, once you were there. So you're pretty much every other game getting into a, a fight
1: is yep. like what you're doing. Yeah, and then mentally, and the hardest part is mentally preparing for it, you know, and then mentally preparing for it when it doesn't even happen. So this, you know, this chronic state of anxiety. But, um, you know, and that's, that's where I, you know, I always talk about um, to people when I talk about anxiety. is like it's hard to explain that type of anxiety because it's like, you know, the fight or flight is you pick one, right? It's, it's, it's either you run away or you fight. Um, in a hockey game, well, yeah, I mean, I'm going in there assuming I'm going to fight, but a lot of times it wouldn't necessarily happen when I wanted to on my time. So now I'm sitting there waiting for it, you know. Is it going to happen? There's a lot of times that, I mean, I mean, half of those times I prepared to fight and didn't fight. So it's like this chronic anxiety. Even when I would fight, I'm worried about the next fight. It was just like this 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 constant state of anxiety. So it was, uh, I don't know. It was uh, it was something I needed to kind of get out of eventually because it was, uh, you know, after a couple of, after a couple of years of you know living on this this wave up, you know, I'm working towards something and and you know I'm winning a lot of my fights and I'm learning and, and I'm getting a lot of support from the fans and, you know what I mean? Like a lot of positivity come along with it. Won a couple championships earlier there, my first year pro, my third year pro in the American league, um, you know, a lot of positivity, but even though I was doing a lot of things, you know, poorly, I was doing enough positively to, you know, at least give myself a standing chance. And then I think once I made it and, you know, I got past that first year, which was my first, my best year in the NHL um, fighting wise, and just overall um, just overall development and everything, Um, I don't know if I just got too comfortable or I was just kind of like, well, I I already proved myself and do I got to go fight these guys again next year? And then, you know, I think once you, once you get into that headspace, it it just, it goes downhill from there. So then from there it was like my, my, my head necessarily wasn't in it. Like it was like all the way leading up to there. Cause I think the ego side of it all, you know, just showed me how shallow the game was. I'm like, geez, I'm like. I'm sure partying a lot and you know, I mean, I'm, I'm living in this bubble and it's like, this is, you know, is this reality? And, and this is, if this is playing in the NHL living my dream, I'm like, shouldn't I be happier? Like, you know, where's the fulfillment, the like, true fulfillment. So somewhere along the lines there, my emotions certainly weren't in line with what I needed to do on the ice. And, you know, I started losing fights and uh, you know, just, you know, just after like, you know, the, the, the fourth year there, um, you know, hardly, I think I played 17 games, you know, they had a new coach come in, didn't need, you know, didn't have, have a need for an enforcer and, and rightfully so. I mean, I didn't, I wasn't playing um well enough to, to earn a spot. You know, again, I was, I think at that point is really when I noticed that all these things that I was doing, it was, ca- we catching up all the unsustainable, uh, training, the unsustainable living, the drinking, uh, all these different things and, and not thinking correctly, eventually affected my performance long term. And then that's when I was like, whoa. And then, you know, then I think that's when I noticed the mental health component and, you know, the, uh, different type of anxiety, borderline, you know, depression, there's like, uh, I'm like, you know, I'm like good enough. And, you know, what am I now? You know what I mean? I'm not as tough as I thought I was, you know what I mean? All these question marks, which is essentially the, the crossroads of me, you know, transitioning into the real world at the age of 28.
0: So I have a million questions, but the first one that comes to mind is in the last decade, uh, there have been multiple suicide or opioid overdoses for guys that did what you did um, in the NHL. And I actually think I'm surprised it's not a bigger story. Um, The amount is, it's, it's scary. Um, I I just would love to get your perspective on, on what's happened there and uh, yeah, your perspective.
1: Yeah. You know what? It's, it's, it's interesting because, um, you know, those, those deaths certainly give the tough guy role, uh, a black eye. There's no question. Um, but I, I also am honest in that, you know, substance abuse doesn't discriminate. And I've seen a, a ton of guys go down, um, you know, in hockey, out of hockey, you know, with, you know, mental health issues that, you know, that they didn't get punched in the face for, but what I've I, I, I've identified with the role, And then, you know, comparing that to, say, military veterans, because I've done a lot of stuff with them. And just uh, what I see in society is that when you're so consumed in something, you know, in this case, it's your identity. It's it's who you think you are. Right. So uh, I thought I was a fighter. And this is Riley Cote. And then when that's all over, right, the glory, the you know, the, the resources, everyone's doing things for you. You know what I mean? Being an ice bag, someone will throw it 20 feet and you can catch it. You know what I mean? You don't have to do, send, you know, anything. And then all of a sudden it's like, it's over. Whether it's an, an injury that ends it or, you know, you just can't find a job. Um, everyone's situation is a little bit different. And then all of a sudden you're, you know, if you hadn't spent that, that, that downtime in building yourself, you know, outside of your identity as an enforcer, well, now you're figuring out who you are. Well, who it, who am I? I'm not. I'm not. I'm not even a hockey player anymore. i Let alone a fighter. You know what I mean? I'm not neither of those. There's this identity crisis, and again, most guys are self medicating with alcohol and probably on some prescription drugs. If you left the game with a surgery, you, you definitely got. You left the game with some prescription drugs, and uh, you know alcohol is ingrained in the culture of hockey and sports and society. So naturally, you're gonna go wash down those you know prescription pills with. With alcohol and it gets dark very quickly you talk about you know depressant as an alcohol uh, and alcohol and these other drugs which are you know can throw them in depressant uh, you know category as well and then the lack of identity and purpose um, it's 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 dark right and then you know what if, if you don't have the right tools you're not int- you haven't been introduced to the right tools you lean on some darker tools you want to call them that um and and then and then it, go, it goes uh, it goes downhill but you know it's a, uh, i've seen this in, in, in the military where they're so identified with them being a soldier and then again they come back and the va is just pumping them full of pills and they got no purpose no identity and they're you know mismedicating um and then you know it, it goes dark so and to answer your question i don't think this is totally um a tough guy issue, but, um, I think, you know, outside of the identity of being a hockey player, I think that's a more specific identity that these guys connect with. So, um, I think the fall can be greater for these guys where, you know, they're, again, they're, they're the guy that stands up for their teammates. They're the guy that takes the punch and for their teammate and goes to the penalty box for their teammates. So um,
0: selfless and in service to something bigger than themselves. And then yeah. that identity is also stripped in the military. Same way. Yep. It's a brotherhood. They are not about themselves. They're about the guy next to them. And it's hard to find that brotherhood and that camaraderie outside the locker room or outside the barracks or whatever you want to call it.
1: Yeah, no, for sure. That support system is no longer there. You feel like you're on an island and isolated. Um, And again, it's like the structure of playing in sports is, is so regimented. It's here's your schedule for the year, here's your schedule for the month, here's your schedule for the week. And you know what time to be there. You can literally roll in, you know. 15 minutes before you need to be there coming right from the bar if you wanted to and a lot of guys do so it's almost like you know it's it's so programmed that it becomes unconscious um so that's very structured regimented um way of life to like okay well now i gotta go find myself i gotta go figure myself i gotta get a job all these different things who am i, am I just gonna go you know pick up a nine to five just because and there's just a lot of uh you know um pieces that are loose and missing. And uh, I think they struggle. And again, once you start medic self-medicating with the wrong tools, you know I mean, it goes, it goes uh, dark uh, real quick. If and it's I, not already.
0: And I, you know, I would regret not asking you about this. The NFL has had its day with concussions and head traumas and uh, certainly top of the news as it relates to them. The NHL uh, has not what's the right word they haven't owned the concussions in the same way that the nfl has as far as what might be going on and and what might be happening on the ice what are your thoughts as far as head trauma concussions i don't know how many you had or if you had them yeah. uh, but just also talk about head trauma and concussions as it related to your experience
1: well, I think when you're in contact sports, you know, uh, concussions and head trauma are, are ine- inevitable. So um, obviously if you're playing those sports, the leagues themselves are very aware of that, right? I mean, you don't just get hit in the head, um, you know, randomly uh, outside of the rink. So, um, you know, their position is interesting. Um, you know, they don't want to admit guilt on, you know, some of the, you know, probably some of these lawsuits. I think it gets, you um, complicated when you mix in substance abuse with you know uh, concussions and where do you draw the line so i think every situation is a little bit different obviously and you know they're playing more of a legal you know a, a, a very safe legal position on this because you know, for some of these cases, they're questionable because a lot of these guys had substance abuse issues before they really got into their concussion issues. And then, you know, and uh, yeah, obviously, head trauma is not good for the brain. I think we all know that. I think what 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 the NHL just hasn't came out and said that there's no connection between concussions and what T, uh, and CTE or something like that. Yeah, um, they've
0: they've been probably the lightest um, on acknowledging the the connection.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, you know, again, I think concussions certainly don't improve brain health at all, right? I mean, um, I think that's pretty apparent. I think the challenge is, is is defining how much of that concussion is actually the concussion, and how much of that is actually the individual. When you include substance abuse and, and some of these other things that they're, you know, they could be dealing with. It's complicated, right? So, like, I've seen you know scans of brain scans of someone with alcoholism um, and someone with CTE, and then someone uh someone with uh, Parkinson's and and dementia, and you know these brains look very similar. And you know, again, traditionally in um, in 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 sports, and I'll I'll speak for the hockey culture, is that there's a lot of booze, a lot of booze, and a lot of these guys have substance abuse issues with booze and partying and you know, and dehydrating the brain. And, um, and then, you know, then you, then you compound head trauma on that. Um, it it gets a little confusing on, um, how much of that long-term concussion now is actually the concussion or is it, you know, you know, some brain imbalances that went on before the concussion. Um, so I, I think it's, you know, yeah, I mean, they're playing it very safe on what they say. Um, because um, you know it, it's not it's not so black and white when you talk about brain. I mean, you talk about you know certain foods affecting the brain. I mean, if you eat cheeseburgers all day long too, I mean that that'll affect your brain and stimulate it in a different way. If you're trying to improve a concussion, so um, there's no question that head trauma. Um, um, can can really lead to some really negative, um, you know, f- things down the road. But I think it's all about the type of treatment after, right? I mean, I've seen guys on Valium from concussions, and I've also um, seen guys use mushrooms and cannabis. I'm speaking for myself and some other guys. You know what I mean? So, two totally separate, polar opposite spectrums when you talk about what's good for the brain and what actually creates neurogenesis and brain cell growth, and what actually um, you know, might deteriorate the brain, dehydrate the brain, or, you know, impact the liver and other organs um, in a negative fashion. So I think it's complicated. Honestly, I don't know what the answer is. Um, you know, I, they're an organization. They have a ton of lawsuits. People will be suing you left and right if you say the wrong thing. Um, because, it, you know, when you, talk, when you talk about health from a holistic perspective, it's, it's so much more complicated than just like one hit. One little thing—it's like I've been punched in the face thousands of times. I mean, I've been over 250 hockey fights. I mean, I would be a perfect candidate for someone to kill myself. You know, I mean, based on the trends. Um, unfortunate. I mean, say fortunately, I was blessed enough to to explore, and didn't get swallowed up. And uh, you know, when I had the substance abuse issues. Um, I didn't go to, you know, any of these programs where I just said, you know what, I, I can do this myself. And this started transitioning from the way I was eating and self-medicating, you know, from, from, from you know, nutrient depleted foods to nutrient rich foods, from alcohol and, you know, unconscious forming, you know, self-medications to conscious forming medications. And, I, and from what I know in the science, you know, the neuroprotectant properties, the neurogenesis properties. It's helping, you know, create neuro, new pathways in the brain um, versus the way I've seen some of these guys, you know, deal with concussions. It's, uh, and and that's, you know, education and we're, you know, we're probably light years away from, you know, when we're actually seeing, I say light years, I mean, we're probably closer than we think, but, you know, actually as a, as a society using mushrooms, you know, to, to treat brain injury, um, so you know, it's still taboo.
0: But just real quick on the fighting thing. So, your role has changed in the n h l There is less fighting yep. today. um most teams don't carry a player just to do that it, yep. you know, I'm in washington d c and there's Tom Wilson who came up with yeah, the- that's, <laughs> that's how he got his start, but now he's playing alongside some of the best players in the world and yep. as and he's still he's still playing <laughs> aggressively but but he he if he wasn't being effective. Putting the puck in the net and skating and all that other stuff, he probably wouldn't still be there. So, for sure, uh, one thing I'm curious about: Do you think fighting should be part of the game?
1: You know, what I've certainly changed my stance on the overall philosophy of fighting because I think you know, like the way I'm off the ice in the spiritual quest, where I'm you know, I'm yogi and you know, do no harm and you know, nonviolence and all these different things, um, which I which I actually live in my in my real life. But you have to separate real life from contact sport so in the game of hockey i think it just plays by different rules it always has and it's much like the street where there's accountability you know what i mean there's like the neighborhood bully or the neighborhood tough guy or the you know the, the local guy that comes to the bar it shows up in his you know vest and there's this respect that's kind of earned or you know that's around because you know i don't want to you know misbehave. And then this guy punches me in the face. So in hockey, that is very, very true that, you know, if there's disrespectful play, there's people taking advantage of other players. It's a physical, physical sport, even without the fighting. It's like you got grown men uh, using their body position and strength and muscle to to outcompete the opponent to get a puck. You think that emotions are not going to get high over time. And then you know you don't think a guy that's six foot five that actually is kind of an asshole is not going to use you know that 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 bully type of mentality to to out compete or you know as strategy to out compete uh, the opponent. Well, that's exactly what happened. Um, you know, broad street bullies probably you know obviously to the other side of the, the extreme here is that they would have bench clearing brawls. I mean, the, the whole team is like you know we're gonna we're gonna bully our opponent out of the building. And they did that for a couple of years until all the other teams got tough guys. And then it's okay. Well now we're just protecting our players and we're keeping that mutual peace and and respect. But um, I think there still is a place for fighting in hockey, the accountability. I mean, I I played the role. I remember playing against Washington capitals and, and and Donald Brashear and be like, Oh, Brash isn't playing tonight. So I can even run around like more of a jackass tonight. You know what I mean? It just like, it, it just like allowed me to be even more fearless Um, you know, whether where, whether if he was playing, I mean, the way I was wired, I was mentally going to fight him anyways, but you know what I mean? I I just had that extra runway and it's like, you know, guys that aren't true, true, like legit enforcers, the guy more like the rat rules, they, they take, they take liberties. They're Mm -hmm. good hitters.
0: And And there's no
1: one, if there's no one else there to, to, you know, to to come after them and keep them, um, you know, in check, they're going to, they're just going to, you know, hide behind the rules, which is exactly the NHL that we're seeing now. It's like, Okay. Uh, the, the, I don't know if you saw the Kachuk and Cassian thing not too long ago there, but it was, you know, a guy blatantly runs the same guy three times, in, in, I think in two shifts, and uh, eventually had enough, and you know, you know, tries to keep the guy accountable. And, well, he turtles, the guy gets, uh, you know, uh, kicked out of the game. They go on the power play. That uh, Calgary actually wins the game, so the guy gets, you know, penalized in, in that regards because he's just defending himself and um, from you know two arguably dirty hits. And then he gets suspended for two games. So it's like, in my opinion, like the other guy should at least, they should at least give him a, a penalty to wash that so the team doesn't lose the game because he, he was doing, what the, doing the right thing. You know what I mean? The refs weren't calling it.
0: And Riley, you have kids. I think you mentioned you're picking them up as soon as we finish this up. Yep. So how old are your kids?
1: I got two daughters, uh, four years old, and then my youngest is turning three in, uh, in a month.
0: And you want them to play hockey?
1: Um, You know what? I'm going to let them be. My older one, I tried to bring around the rink uh, this year. I do some learn-to-play stuff with uh, the Flyers uh, youth. And, um, you know, she's four, and, and, and there's some four-year-olds that do it. She's she just not not into it. She She's so stinky, and it's cold. My younger one seems to want to play hockey. She's like, I want to play, Daddy. And, you know, she's not even three yet. So um, we'll see. You know, I'm going to get them on the ice if they if they seem like they love it. Um, you know, I'm, I'm all in. I would actually love to coach them because that would be the only time I could see myself really getting back into hockey coaching would be with my daughter's teams, but uh, I'm not going to force them. My, my older one seems like she's more of a, you know, gymnast, uh, creator, you know what I mean? Like bubbly personality. So we'll see. But uh, I'm, I'm supportive if they want to. Again, understanding it's a physical sport. I feel like I have a pretty good understanding of the proper tools um, that I would use if, uh, you know, if they got a concussion or whatnot, knowing the risks. But I mean, just knowing the risks, I my mean, life is risky. I mean, if you want to sit in your home and live in a bubble, I mean, uh, I don't know. I mean, it's uh, hockey's uh, an amazing sport. I mean, I learned a lot from it, you know, and, and I think it, it could it could continue to be better, but you know, once again, that pro rank and, you know, you got, you know, big, big dudes that are, you know, jockeying for position around the puck. Um, that accountability is powerful. And I think, uh, you know, I think it needs to stay in the game.
0: And at 28, you're now out of hockey. Uh, and for most people at 28, they're starting their career or they're starting the trajectory of their career and really making moves. What did, what did you do from 28 on and, and fill in the rest of the gaps for us as far as uh, what you've been up to since you stopped uh, playing hockey?
1: Sure. So I uh, originally transitioned right into coaching. So I got into coaching the Flyers minor league team which was one of the main reasons I you know, actually retired at 28. I had another year on my contract and I just turned it into a four-year coaching deal. So it was one of those things. It was an exit strategy. Not that I saw myself coaching, you know, as a career in long, long term, but it was like, okay, well, now I can get away from the game but stay in the game. So, you know, instead of preparing to fight, I can prepare video and, you know, you know just be normal and, you know, kind of remove that, uh, that anxious energy that was kind of hanging over me. Um, so staying in the game, which is a game I so love. that was
0: your decision, not theirs. You were saying, I'm, I need to get myself right and I need to do something right. different. So,
1: so what happened that summer, um, the assistant coach from the Phantoms, the Flyers, minor league team's house burnt down and got struck by lightning. So he was not coming back that next year. So a job opportunity opened up and the general manager kind of had a good relationship with him. He knew where my head was kind of at as far as like, geez, you know, like kind of a rough year and another year, you know, um, on my contract and the reality was I was probably going to get sent down um, just based on the new coach and the way the season had gone. Um, so, you know, I left the season, got my fit and you in physical, went home, you know, going home, I was in the middle of summer training, um, for the next training camp and everything like that. And then he called me up when all that, all this went down and just said, Hey, listen, he's like, you know, I got this opportunity. I want to run it by you. And, you know, I was curious in where your head space is at, but, uh, Sammy's house burnt down. Job opened up. Uh, would you be interested in And, you know, as soon as he threw it out there, I was like, wow. I'm like, you know, I was like, I thought about it for a split second, like, wow, this is like a game I've played my whole life. And this, I, I could actually decide to to retire at <laughs> 28. You know what I mean? So, but almost immediately I, I thought that, that was the answer. It was my, you know, gut feeling. It was like, wow. So I was like, well, Homer, I'm gonna, I got to you know think about this forgive me a couple of days. I was back home in Canada when you called. And like, give me a couple of days. Like I got to run this past, you know, my, my, uh, my, you know, my girlfriend and everything here and see what makes the most sense. And then, um, hang up the phone and it was like, wow, I mean, this is it. Like I, this is, this is my opportunity to, to get out of the game with some sort of a plan. You know what I mean? At least I had four year, four year runway here to, to still stay in the game, still figure myself out. I could, I could extend that coaching, uh, or I could, you know, evolve after, uh, four years into something else. So, I called him back i was there. I think it was a i think i waited I sat on it for one day and then it was the second day i called him back I was like yeah i'm uh, I'm in you know i'm I'm gonna do it so yeah, I got on the coaching and the four years line up becoming seven years, but uh, during that seven years, outside of actually coaching and getting paid for it, i was you know i started a couple of nonprofits but uh i was I was learning to become an entrepreneur, I just realized that i, I was just like. I wanted to do something, create something. I didn't know what it was. And you know, I knew it had to be involving, you know, holism, wellness, you know, probably cannabis or hemp and, you know, some of these things that I, you know, naturally um, was drawn to. And, um, you know, and that's exactly what it did. So um, eventually I got comfortable enough about talking about cannabis uh, after my seventh year there. Um, it took me a couple of years to even get this platform, but uh, I was hitting up the Flyers alumni president, uh, Brad Marsh, to give me a platform at one of their uh, annual meetings to talk about CBD and cannabis and and help these guys basically introduce a solution to these guys that half these guys are stiff and you know arthritis and you know alcoholics and you know all these th- different types of uh, issues and, and I recognize that and I you know seen the, you know at that point seven years later after my retirement. I was like as healthy as I could possibly be. And I felt great. I felt like, you know, man, I wish I could have played at this weight and this mentality and all that stuff. But wanted to present a, an opportunity to these guys to, you know, to dive into something and explore something alternative. And 45 minutes, talk about CBD, talk about the medical cannabis program, you know, Pennsylvania versus New Jersey where most of these guys live. And um, the next day I got fired. Um, wow. And um, so it was like wow. I was like, but I also, you know, put myself in a position to understand that it was, this is, you know, back in, I mean, how many years ago now? Um, geez, it's like three or four years now. And you know before, you know, before there was just totally like mainstream and everything, but I, I knew I was putting myself in a, you know, in, in a predicament of ruffling some feathers, right? I mean, you're going up against some old school guys in that alumni meeting, there was at least 45 guys and a lot of them from the era of, you know, the Broad Street bullies and, you know, self-medicating with alcohol and, you know, in, in recovery programs and whatnot. So they are taught that cannabis is, is, is part of that. So I understand it was, it was probably too early, but nonetheless it was the best thing ever happened to me because getting kicked off the boat forced me to swim. And then kind of like all the things that I was envisioning and kind of creating, um, basically kind of, um, you know, came to a point where, okay, now this is the path I'm taking. And, you know, and that's when I started my you know, hemp derived CBD company, body check wellness, you know, providing sustainable solutions for not just athletes, uh, for the common man, you know, pain, inflammation, anxiety, sleep, protecting the brain, neuroprotecting properties of cannabinoids. Um, and obviously the educational component that comes along with it, which I've been already was doing for, you know, seven years plus, um, just talking about hemp and cannabis as a recovery tool. But, um, you know, that, that, that was it. So, gonna, you know, just a couple other projects along in, in, in line with the, the hemp and cannabis play, um, you know, started to realize I was a lot more creative than I ever thought. Started, a, you know, a small media company where I'm into, you know, more production, starting a podcast. So just trying to build all these things around wellness, around mental health. Uh, I started on my own personal brand here about, you know, essentially one-on-one coaching or um, you know, mindfulness coaching, um, you know, schools and uh different sports programs, just teaching them the power of the mind, the power of attitude, you know, the power of energy and, and focus and concentration, stilling the mind, meditation, yoga. I'm getting certified to be a yoga instructor here in the next uh a month or so. Um so just all these different things. So I'm kind of all in on the wellness here now and uh it's been it's been amazing without knowing what direction I mean no really knowing the direction I was going in, but not really knowing how I was going to, you know, really shape up is, it's just trusting, you know, in, in the process, I guess. And, you know, when the, the right people are meant to come along in your life and if you're sending out the right vibration that you're, you're attracting the right part of your tribe um, and all these things start to manifest and, you know, I think nothing easy about startups, but this, um, I, mean, I think it's starting to slowly kind of, you know, get the, get the wings it needs. And, uh, it's been, it's been fun.
0: What is your meditation practice look like?
1: It's a little bit different every day, but I do meditate every day. <clears throat> this morning I meditate Well, first thing I wake up super early this morning, I uh, woke up and meditated wrote, um, four in the morning, um, for 30 minutes. Have you always been an early riser? Yep. Always sure. been an early riser. Um, probably mainly because all well, my parents were early risers, but uh, I had the, um, the paper route uh, back in the day from 11 to 16 or so so it was up at you know five o'clock in the morning um, so I always took pride in getting up in the morning and getting after it so getting up in the morning and and attack in the day is well it's twofold There's, I just I enjoy getting up early but also with my kids I get, I get that you know two two and a half hours of of time before they get up where I'm you know you know have to be present and staying on it then so uh, do,
0: you, do you how much do you sleep
1: I go to bed pretty early, you know, nine, nine would be roughly is the average that I go to sleep. Uh, a late night for me, probably 10, (laughs) honestly. And then, you know, every so often you have like these probably tomorrow night, for example, my, my uh, father-in-law is going to be a little bit, a little later, I'm sure. But, um, yeah, I go to bed, uh, I go to bed pretty early. You know, I just uh, wake up so early and I'm buzzing all day. And then, you know, when it's time to go to sleep, it's time to go to sleep because soon after the girls go down, you know what I mean? Uh, do a little bit with my wife and clean up and, you know, and have a conversation, but then it's, it's to bed. Cause it's just, you know, you know how life is. And it's, it's uh it's a, uh, it's, uh, it, it's fun, but it's, it's challenging and it wears on you. So you have to, you have to get your rest.
0: Riley, this has been a, a lot of fun. I've learned a ton from you and, and just sort of let you go. I think you're the type of person that you just let go and there's a lot that's going on in that brain of yours. And um, it's, it's just interesting to hear your perspective and how you, think about things and how you think about the world. And I'm just grateful that we got connected and I was able to learn from you. If people want to learn more about what you're up to uh, and your company's up to, where can they find that? Where can they find wh- where you are on social media? All that good stuff.
1: Sure. I'm on uh, Instagram at Riley Coyote uh, 32. So R-I-L-E-E-C-O-Y-O-T-E 32 uh, on Facebook just Riley Cote, um, Twitter, Riley Cote, uh, Riley Coyote again, R-I-L-E-E-C-O-I-O-T-E. Soon to we'll be launching, uh, Cote Culture, which is kind of the umbrella, um, website and, um, and business for all, all the things I'm involved in. So the podcast, uh, you know, my hemp derived CBD, all the links to everything I'm doing, media, all that stuff. So that'll be launched next couple of weeks. Um, but yeah, uh, Shoot me a message, say what's up, and uh, I appreciate the platform.
0: Awesome! I'm on Twitter at Brian Levinson, Instagram Intentional underscore Performers, you can listen to all these conversations at intentionalperformers.com. dot Riley, great to get to know you. Looking forward to connecting with you if I'm in Philly or if you're down in DC. And um, what would we grab? I don't know.
1: Maybe we'll do plenty. Like, there's plenty to grab. Yeah, M- no, Mabel, oh, yeah,
0: we'll we'll grab a glass of wine or or grab grab a good sandwich or something um but this has been fun and and thanks for sharing your perspective
1: all right thanks appreciate it talk to you soon
0: thank you for listening to intentional performers with brian levinson here is this week's episode jam
1: i was the fighter on the team and you know i mean I was you know just thought i was gonna live forever and play forever and you know and that was who riley cote was but uh i was sadly mistaken and uh it it just took a lot of know physical emotional and spiritual abuse to to figure out that i was not not living you know my my true divine story you know it was i needed to to shift um gears and you know hop on the other side of the fence and find myself and you know show myself some self-respect and self-love and i know it's. It's, a, it's, a, it's something we don't talk about really at all is, you know, this self-love, but it's it's certainly important to the spiritual component of life. And, and without it, you really can't understand love as an energy and you can't really truly love other people if you don't love yourself. And I think it just comes with, you know, self-respect through the choices you make.